So uh, <clears throat> when, <clears throat> excuse me, when Jerry was giving the children's message, I was just shocked that he didn't base the children's message on the gospel reading. <laughs> it's just, I can't imagine why you would do that. Um, no, I mean, this, <clears throat> this section here is uh, it's tricky, to say the least. And we obviously don't have the several hours it would take to kind of go line by line uh, through it to make the most sense out of it uh, that we can. But we're going to at least cover the, the, the gist of it. See, Jesus had, uh, for quite a while, been saying that he is heading towards Jerusalem, the holy city, the place of the temple. And when he gets there, he will be handed over and executed. And he said this several times, and his disciples don't really get it. Well, they either don't get it or they don't buy it. And at one point, Peter, uh, he is like, no, absolutely not. That's not going to happen. And Jesus calls him Satan. So Jesus is pretty adamant about this. And most of the book of Luke is uh, somewhere on that trajectory toward Jerusalem. Now, this is chapter 21. In chapter 19, Jesus, on the week before Passover, Passover being the celebration and commemoration of when God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, bringing them freedom, that Jesus crests or goes over the crest of the Mount of Olives and probably not too dissimilar from the scene we have on, uh, on the screen behind us, you see the ancient equivalent of the skyline of Jerusalem opening up. Now, the temple itself would have been the most prominent feature. Uh, it was beautiful. And, and it was widely known throughout the Greco-Roman world how amazing it was because Herod the Great, you know, the one who slaughtered the children, and that's honestly like one of the least heinous things that he's done, by the way. Uh, that man was bonkers. But he uh, was a great builder, and he wanted the temple, God's temple in Jerusalem, to be this amazing place, and he did it. There was a whole tourist industry around the temple. So when Jesus' disciples are going, wow, look at this. I mean, they, they, that's not an exaggeration. But anyways, Jesus goes over that mountain and he looks at the city skyline. He bursts into tears. And this is not the first time he did that either. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known the things that make for peace, but now that way is shut. And he essentially uh, prophesies its destruction. Now, uh, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he you know does the thing with the money, the the table. Uh, there are the, all these tables where people are changing money over in the temple area, and he disrupts that a little bit. And it's not because he's mad at the people at the table, but it's a demonstration that 
this whole area is now under judgment. And so we get to now our, our reading for today. Jesus' disciples are like, wow, this is amazing. And Jesus goes, don't get too attached. It's coming down. And then they ask a very natural question. When? And Jesus, uh, of course, he doesn't give them a straight answer. He's a rabbi. Why would you give him a straight answer? And instead, he effectively says, like, you'll kind of know it when you see it. You know, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. If anyone knows Ghostbusters. <laughs> um, But the, paint, or the picture that he paints is bleak. And it's confusing. And he uses images that, that for our modern ears aren't terribly clear. Now, just a principle of interpreting the Bible. When you have a big old section like this where a whole bunch of it is not clear, start with the things that make sense to you. And I think it's verse 32. There's a part that makes a lot of sense. It's remarkably clear. Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. Great, we have a timeline now. See, our impulse, especially, it's very much a modern American, Western Christian thing, is to read this section and start to think that this is about Jesus' second coming. But it's not. In part because we have such a striking timeline. Jesus says, you guys are going to be witness to this. Now, we know, we know when it happened, or when it started. It started in the year 66. Um, rebel, uh, a rebellion broke out. There were separate rebel groups, and they kind of got together. I'm sparing you some, like, wild, horrific details. And they start an uprising. They storm the temple complex. They burn the debt records that were held in the temple, which you might wonder, why is the temple brokering debt records? Very good question. We'll talk about that some other time. Then they go, they storm the, the, the palace of the high priest, murder him, and then it's on. And then the Romans come in and encircle the city, just like Jesus said. And they tear it down, they sack Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and it is laid waste forever. Just like Jesus said. A couple other features about this. Jesus says, when you start to pick up that something is going to happen, he says to his followers, get out. Run. This is not the time for bravery. You need to leave. Boy, Jesus can be warm and fuzzy, can't he? Now, interestingly enough, there's a, an ancient church historian named Eusebius who writes uh, later after this, but he's using uh, more ancient sources, who would say that, uh, or he, he, he writes that for the followers of Jesus living in Jerusalem 
Uh, someone in that community had a dream, warning them, get out, it's about to happen, and they did. And the followers of Jesus, for the most part, got out and were safe. We know of one who chose not to. His Hebrew name is Nakdamon Ben-Gurion. We would know him as Nicodemus. And one of the things that Jesus does here is stake his reputation as a prophet on this event. Which is why he makes this odd comment that when this all happens and the destruction comes, you will see the Son of Man riding on the clouds. And that's why sometimes people will think this is about the second coming, but what this is really is an ancient way of saying Jesus will be vindicated. He made a prediction. They will see this happening, and people will say, oh, he was right. This is all happening exactly as he said. But there's an impulse here, and I, I kind of want to focus on this. To, to read, I think, in, in a way that neither Luke nor Jesus intended, to, uh, to make this about the end times, about Jesus' return. Um, and, and not only that, but to uh, kind of read into it more and sort of combine other passages of the Bible to say, like, well, this is when Jesus is going to come and remove us from earth. Or something like that. But that way of thinking just isn't present in the text. But there's this impulse that we would want to say, well, surely God will remove me from that horror or that misery. God will save me from that mess. But Jesus doesn't seem to have that intention. Yeah, he says, get out. But Jesus has this, if I could say this, an obnoxious quality about him where he has no intention of saving us from suffering. Jesus does not seem interested in saving us from suffering. Why? Well, one of the other ways that Jesus talks about his whole mission on earth is actually to use language of the Passover. Just like Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, Jesus is enacting his own exodus. That in the original Passover, there was a lamb that was slaughtered and the blood of the lamb is put on the doorposts and that that spares the people from death and then they're able to leave. Well, the difference, however, is that Jesus knows from the start that this isn't a lamb that's getting slaughtered, it's him. And he's not saving uh, his people from slavery for in Egypt or slavery from the Romans or the Greeks or anything like that, but actually he's enacting a, a freedom from slavery to ourselves. 
that when God raises Jesus from the dead, suddenly his disciples are confronted with this reality that Jesus did something that we didn't see coming. He's not about to save us politically. He's about to save us as human beings. That the failures, the exile, the the ways that we have this tendency to destroy ourselves and those around us, that we harm and hurt ourselves and those around us, we judge those around us, we we judge ourselves, we all of this kind of focuses on Jesus and it dies and in its place is this new resurrection life. And then according to Jesus' plan, he never intended to save us in the deepest, richest sense of the word and then remove us from everything around us. But instead, and this is true for his disciples, this is true for you, Jesus saves us and then unleashes us throughout the world. And in fact, this deru- the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem is one of these weird key moments in history. We'd talk, be talking about this in a class in ancient history, not just a church. But this was the moment when what we eventually beca- uh, start calling the way of Jesus, Christianity, however you want to say it, just scatters. And the world was never the same again because we actually listened to what Jesus said. We saw what was coming. We got out. And then the gospel spread like wildfire. So my question for you would be, what what does it look like now for Jesus to unleash you on the rest of the world. Your sins are forgiven. You are a renewed person in Jesus. You are saved and loved unconditionally in spite of yourself. As Martin Luther would put it once, uh, eventually, excuse me, eventually, that God creates in you that which is worthy. Meaning, congratulations, you have nothing to offer God. This is good news. And now he creates something in you that is worthy and wants to spread it out to your communities, your families, your country, your kingdom, whatever. What does that look like for you? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like to now finally circle back to the point I'm trying to make. It does not necessarily look like removing you from struggle or suffering. And I don't know about you, but I find that unsettling. I'll give you an example that's funny. Um, my, uh, one of my uh, pastors in college, and he really kind of became my mentor for, for a while, uh, told this story that he and his roommate, very, very faithful Christians, and his roommate came to him one day uh, while they were in college and said, dude, I, I had an exam today I completely forgot about, just 
utterly forgot. And I get there, I sit down, I, I get the exam, and, um, and, and I start praying. I said, God, just tell me what the answers are, and I will listen, and I will write them down. And sure enough, I'm in prayer this whole time, and I just got the test back. I got a B. I got an 86. My Kyle, my, my mentor, he, he posted two questions. The first was, I'm pretty sure God can do better than a B. <laughs> and then his second point is, why, w- why would God just give him the answers? Wouldn't God's intention to be that his child becomes a little more conscientious, a little more stu- uh, studious, a little more mature? Yeah. That's, yeah, he would. (laughs) Which is why Jesus doesn't exist to save us from suffering. Sometimes he does. Sometimes God heals. Sometimes God rescues. But in my experience, not usually. Because if if God's design is to unleash his people on the earth and change it forever in his name, then by his spirit, he will always be forming us, enriching us from the inside teaching us to be disciples, followers in the way of Jesus. Which means that on the one hand, yes, this passage is about uh, something that started in the year 66 AD. It ended in the year 70 AD with the Romans just crushing Jerusalem in what is one of the most, I mean, it is human nature at its worst, if you've ever read the descriptions of what happened. But on the other hand, there's a very, very sober principle behind it all. That is, we follow Jesus who doesn't snatch us away from suffering but takes us through it. But also doesn't do it as though he were detached and and has no idea of what that's really like because the Christian story starts with Jesus enduring suffering. and redeeming it in new life. And the promise is that he has done and will do the same for us as he unleashes us on the world to build his kingdom. Amen.